Welcome to Murder and Mimosas. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. Our show is Murder and Mimosas. It's a true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances, murder, and sexual assaults. All our episodes are told with the respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information, but some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in. Hey everyone, this is Danica and Shannon, and today we are going to tell you the story about the West Memphis Three. This is actually part one of a three-part series because there's just a lot of information that goes along with the West Memphis Three that there's no way we could get this all in one episode. So I'm going to set the scene. It is early May, May 5th of 1993, and we're in West Memphis, Arkansas, which is like two hours east of Little Rock, Arkansas, and 15 minutes west of Memphis, Tennessee. So right outside of Memphis. And the boys we're going to talk about, there's three eight-year-old boys, Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Chris Byers. And these three boys are all in second grade together at Weaver Elementary. They um, are friends, and, you know, it's a pretty small town. They live near each other. So after school, Michael Moore comes over to Stevie Branch's house and asks if Stevie can come ride bikes with him. And at first, Stevie's mom, Pamela Hobbs, said no, but the boys begged, and so she relented, and she's like, yeah, that's fine. You can go. Just make sure you're home by 4.30. So the boys say okay, and they head out, and along the way, they pick up Chris Byers to go ride bikes with them. 4.30 rolls around and Stevie's not home and his mom doesn't seem super worried um, because, you know, they're boys. They probably don't know exactly what time it is. They're out riding bikes. But at 4.55, 5 o'clock, she has to go to work. So her husband, Terry Hobbs, which is Stevie's stepfather, takes her to work and says that he'll come back and he'll find Stevie. Well, at 8 o'clock, the first call comes in to the police and it's from Chris Byers' home. His stepfather, John Michael Byers, and his mom, Alyssa Byers called the police to say that Chris has not made it home. And this wasn't like any of the boys. So 924 rolls around. Michael's more parents are making the same phone call to report Michael missing. And sometime between 8 and that 924 phone call, there's not an exact time, um, but Terry and Pamela Hobbs um, call in to also report Stevie missing. But they do it from Pamela's work where Terry goes to pick Pamela up after her shift. And which seems super odd that he's doing this from work, from her work rather than home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially because he was like, yeah, I'm going to go back. So he's been searching for hours, supposedly, and is just now calling. So now um, the police come out. They take missing persons reports, but it's dark can't see anything to really be searching. So they don't really search. Um, The parents did go out for a while and search, but again, you can't really see anything. So mid-morning on May 6th, the sun's out and this search is in full force. They've got search and rescue. They have civilians, you know, neighbors in the town and even a helicopter just searching for these boys. There was a one area that was given a lot of attention, and that was because it was a wooded, secluded area that was right behind all of these houses in the neighborhood, and the locals call it Robin Hood Hills. In Robin Hood Hills, there is a large ditch that was created. It's 10 miles long. It's fairly wide, 
as far as depth, it just kind of depends. A lot of that depends on how much rain they've gotten, how much water is in there. Um, but it's created to direct the rainwater into the Mississippi. Before noon, the search and rescue puts a John boat, which is a pretty small, kind of looks like a fishing boat when we looked it up because we had <laughs> no idea what that was. No idea. And the water, you know, is super muddy and murky. So they put it in there. They can't see to the bottom. And they pulled the length of this ditch. But nothing came up. And if you're wondering what pulled is, it's an actual pole they stick into the water looking for things. We also had to look that up. So around noon, many people had moved on from Robin Hood Hills because nothing had been found. So they go on to search other areas. One person, a juvenile officer named Steve Jones, does continue, continue his search in the woods near the Blue Beacon truck wash. And as far as where that is, the way this is set up, and there is going to be a picture of the map on our Instagram if you want to be able to visualize that along with a picture of the boys if you want to see what they look like. They're really cute. And so the way it's set up is you have the neighborhood, you have this wooded area, and on the other side of that wooded area is this blue button beacon truck wash and it is right up against the highway so he's looking in that wooded area right next to the truck wash at about 1 30 steve jones looks down and sees this black tennis shoe floating in this muddy water in the ditch and the weird thing about it is that it has no shoelaces but it's clearly a child's tennis shoe so he radios it in and i mean police are swarming that area because this is the first clue they've gotten all day. So they show up where Officer Jones is and Sergeant Allen goes into the water. And it's not long after he enters. So back up just a little. The way that the ditch is, is that bottom part is all muddy and it's almost like quicksand. Like it just sucks you in. So he's like, you know, wading through, but he's having to kind of jerk his legs up to get him out of this mud. And it's not long after he enters right where that shoe was that the first body floats to the surface and the body was of michael moore and as if that's not absolutely devastating enough the state of the body is heartbreaking so he comes up and remember this is an eight-year-old little boy he has his left wrist tied with shoelaces behind his back to his left ankle and his right wrist is tied Again, with a shoelace behind his back to his right ankle. So kind of hogtied. Um, he's completely naked and there's damage seen to his head. So this is just a brutal scene. And this is only the first body. So the officers knew that you know, there's likely the two other bodies not far off. So Detective Ridge volunteers for this task. He wades into the water, like gets his hands down on this mud and is like, searching hoping hoping to find the other two bodies which is just a really sad thing to go into a water looking for um so he starts searching and he hits something it's not a body it's sticks that are literally stabbed into this mud which is odd because that's not how you know naturally sticks would be in the water so he pulls them up, and around each stick is clothing that's just deliberately wrapped around these sticks and then jammed into the ground so the clothing doesn't float up. When they've pulled all the sticks up with all the clothes, they, you know, take into account everything they have, and they find everything that was listed in the missing persons reports from their parents, except for one sock and two pairs of underwear. But everything else is accounted for. 
And we would also like to note the underwear still have never been found. I don't know where they are. Or the sock. Or the sock. <laughs> so Rich continues, you know, down the ditch and he end up ends up hitting another body. And this body's like suctioned into the mud. You remember it's super thick, just pulls you in. So he has to tug it a little to get it loose, and it ends up being Stevie Branch's body. He's tied in the same manner as Michael Moore, except for he has, you know, we talked about some damage to um, Michael's face, but Stevie's left face had some significant damage and was just badly beaten, and there was what resembled bite marks, though that is not, not for sure yet. So he goes a bit further along, and he finds Chris Byers' body face down in the mud, tugs it loose again, and his body floats up to the surface. When he was removed, the shock of all the officers happens. He has the most just savage injuries to him. His scrotum and most of his penis were gone, and all that remained were a bit of the skin of the penis. I just want to interject here for a second about the cause of death because because that's always interesting. And there were actually two different causes of death. Stevie and Michael were both drowned. And Chris, um, his cause of death was severe injuries. And he was also the only one that had his uh, genitalia mutilated. So I just wanted to throw that in there because it is um, kind of odd that there's two different causes of death to me on here. Eight-year-old little boys. I just can't imagine how the cops felt in that moment. Like it's just devastating. So he Ridge keeps searching a bit, and he finds the two bikes that the boys have been riding. And just want to point out, I know that there are three boys and two bikes. They there's um there was some confusion about that at one point, but Chris Byers started off on a skateboard, which he left left in front of his house in the road. And he ended up riding, like, on the bike with one of the boys, you know, like, hanging on to the back. So there should have only been two bikes, and they found those two. So we're going to take a quick second to play a clip from Pamela Hobbs, that's Stevie's mom, from an in- interview that she did with Geraldo about the events that occurred over May 5th and May 6th, just from her perspective as a parent. Uh, we'll play that real quick, and then we'll be right back. What happened to your son? What was he usually doing at that time after school michael had come over and asked could stevie go to his house and play <clears throat> at Moore, first one I, of the three victims yeah sir yeah to michael moore's house the other little boy and at first i told him no and he kept begging so i went ahead and told him that he could go and i gave him a time to be home i told him to be home by 4 30 that if he wasn't home he would be grounded and i had to go to work that night and I left for work around 4.55, and he still wasn't at home. So I went on to work, and my husband started searching for him. And we searched all night, and just it come up the next day that he was dead. Who told- okay, so after listening to that clip of Pam Hobbs, Stevie's mom, what are your thoughts and feelings? I just... Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles 
bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. pure terror and devastation being a mom not knowing where your children are our child it's it's just terrible and scary it is really scary like I just can't wrap my head around how I would feel um so we're gonna go back now to where we were we had set the scene they just found the boys and pulled them out of the water they at 3 30 call the county corner and he shows up at four to pronounce the boys dead wow so they just like threw the boys on the bank for a couple hours or? Yeah. So actually they um, talk about in one of the documentaries and in the book, The Devil's Knot, that there's actually larvae from bugs growing because they just set them on the bank and they'd covered them with a sheet. But for anyone who doesn't know, Arkansas in May is not cold. Like it is. Hot. Yeah. It's like it's April right now, like late April, almost May, so almost that same time frame. And it was like it's like seventy something degrees today. So not cold. So they are not keeping them in that same temperature and are kind of speeding up the decomposition process, which we will find out later kind of causes some issues. But they do take photographs and videos of the scene, which are honestly, I've seen them. We saw the video at the beginning of Paradise Lost. If you don't want to see them, fast forward for the first little bit. It's a great documentary, but it's it's just a ghastly scene altogether. I think think everybody could have done without the videos of the little boys at the beginning. Yeah, it it's awful. Gary Gitchell is the man who's now in charge of solving a triple homicide of three innocent little boys. He had the ditch sandbagged in hopes of finding more evidence which is literally what it sounds like. They take big sandbags on each side and it creates kind of a dam to keep the water out. He's hoping to find anything at this point, especially if he could find the murder weapon, those missing articles of clothing, or the um, genitals of Chris Byers. Which I can't even imagine hoping to find that, but it's obviously going to be evidence. Despite his idea, nothing further was found in the ditch or any blood. There wasn't really even a lot of blood on, on the bank even, which is kind of weird when you think of the brutality of the injuries these boys sustained. Then Gitchell has to do like the hardest thing I can even imagine as a police officer having to do, and that's to notify the parents that their son's bodies have been found. He starts with Pam Hobbs because she's at the crime scene tape when he walks up. He tells her, and again, that's Stevie's mom. He tells her and she actually faints, which honestly would probably be my reaction. Then he talks to John Michael Byers, which was Chris's stepfather. And it's kind of debated on whether or not he embraced him in a hug or if he was like embracing him to keep him upright because John Michael Byers is a pretty big dude. So he would need almost to be hugged to be kept upright. Then Melissa Moore, which is Michael's mom, and his dad even, I don't see anything about their reaction when they were notified, but his mother did put out a statement that she did not want to know any of the details of what happened to the boys, 
she just didn't feel like she could take it, that it was too gory, which I can completely understand. So, of course, with a crime scene like this, with a crime against three innocent kids in a town that's really not that big, the police immediately begin their investigations. So, Gitchell and his team are pretty much running blind because they have really no evidence. They send everything off to the crime lab to be analyzed, for the autopsies to be done. And starting off, they don't have any reports to go up of. And it actually takes them a while to get them. So they're blindfolded going into this investigation. And they really don't know where to start as far as suspects. Because who would want to kill three little boys? It's just, you know, that's unimaginable. There are a lot of tips that come in because there is a reward that is $35,000. The police set up a fund and donations swell that amount quickly. Of course, with money like that, people are calling and they're giving tons of tips. Some of them crazy, but some of them they did investigate. One of them being about an event that happened the same night that the boys were killed. And that is that at a Bojangles restaurant. Do you want to tell them what Bojangles is for those that don't know? It's a chicken restaurant. Yeah. So I've never been. I've heard good things about it either. But that night, the employees at the Bojangles restaurant called the police because a black male came in covered in blood and went into the lady's restroom. Stayed in there a little bit. The police showed up. They didn't go inside. They took the report through the drive-thru and during that time got another call and left. I can't even imagine like getting it through the drive-thru like, hey, I also need a chicken sandwich and what did you say happened i mean this makes no sense (laughs) yeah it's that's crazy to me and so no no blood is taken that night the manager does keep sunglasses that are left by the man he leaves it on like the guy left it on like the back of the toilet so they keep that and a few days later some cops come by and take some scrapings of the blood and they take the sunglasses and then that's it they leave another tip that comes in is from a little boy who went to school with these three boys. His name's Aaron Hutchinson. He told the police that the same day that the boys were killed, that after school, Aaron saw Michael Moore talking to a black male in a maroon car and telling him that his mom told him that he needed to come pick him up from school and take him home and that Michael Moore got in the car. Which is really crazy because they live right by the school. So apparently that's not true. Or this man did pick him up and drive him right next door and let him out. So yeah, and crazy. Michael's more Michael Moore's mom disputes this claim, except that Michael came right home. So we don't know if this was just a little boy who was scared or he just, you know, we don't know why he made up the story. He's the little kid. Um, but he does come up later again, so remember him. That's Aaron. There is another tip that comes in with from a guy named L.G. Hollisworth. He is a teenager, 17 years old, who lives in the town. He feels that a boy named Damien Eccles may be part of this murder because he thinks he's weird. He dresses in black. He's just not... He's not the same as everyone else. So he points the finger towards Damien. 
he knows Damien because his cousin, Dominique, is dating Damien. But there's no, other than the fact that Damien is different and weird, he doesn't really have any, like, solid evidence. The reason this comes up, though, is pretty quick into this investigation, a bunch of rumors start to swirl that this was a satanic killing or cult killing or some sort of sacrificial ritual type thing that had happened. And then that's why that was the motive. I think when people started to hear this, that's what came up for LG Hollisworth to point his finger at Damien. Uh, Jerry Driver is a juvenile officer in town. He is very big on this being a satanic killing. He's really just big on the whole satanic thing in general. It's kind of his niche, I guess. So he, I think, is the reason that these rumors started and the reason that the cops kind of started to feel the same way. He really just went to town with that theory. And we will see where that leads everyone because that becomes the cops theory as well, especially because they really don't have a lot to go off of right now. So they kind of hold on to that theory. Next week, we'll get further into the investigation of the three boys. And we'll look at the evidence that's uncovered by the West Memphis police, which we're going to tell you now, not a lot. And we will talk about the, the people that are arrested and tried for this crime, as well as the whole trial process. It's quite a crazy story. And then after that, we will talk a little bit further into some other theories. The Alfred plea, if you don't know what that is, we'll talk about that the following week as well as kind of what has happened to the three that were convicted. We will figure out if you think that they did it. What do you think? I will save my judgment for later. (laughs) Okay. I did want to point out this was in 93 and the evidence they have is not like what we would have now with DNA. Um, So I know we're all used to DNA and finding out everything right away, but that that didn't come into play at this time. So a lot of the things that they probably could have gotten, they probably didn't even know to take samples of at the time. Yeah, so do keep that in mind that we are not talking about 2020. This was, or 2022, I don't even know what year <laughs> it is. 2022, this is definitely early 90s. So do keep that in mind that the cops are going to do the best that they can, but they don't have the same resources that we have now or the cops have now. We will post some pictures on our Instagram just for visual for this episode. If you want to check them out, we'll have a map of Robin Hood Hills, the area that the boys were found. Then we will also have pictures of the boys themselves. And we'll throw up a picture of um, Officer Gitchell. That way you don't know who we're talking about. I know I personally like faces to names, especially because there's a ton of names in this one. A lot. So it helps to know who we're talking about. So if you want to check those out, again, they're on our Instagram, which is at murder.mimosas. If you want to ask any questions or just say, hey, you can get on Twitter. We're also there at murder and mimosa, murder.mimosas. Or if you want to send us an email with some future cases you'd like to see done, that is murder.mimosas at gmail.com. Everything is murder.mimosas. I try to make it really simple for you guys. Um, if you guys could do us a huge favor... Rate and review us on iTunes because that just lets other people see us. This is a really important case that we want to get out there. 
and the cases we do in the future are also going to be really important. We just want to get everything out there for people, especially with a case like this where the justice hasn't been served. At least we don't think so. No. And that's why we did this one episode just on our victims. We thought it was really important to talk about just them in this episode because they kind of get forgotten with all of the chaos that goes along with this episode. Also, if you are curious about any of the information we got today, it will be in the show notes, all the links, as well as the documentaries and books that we pulled information from. So be sure to check those out if you want more information before we talk to you next week. So we hope to see you guys next week. And until then, grab a mimosa, have a drink, and have a great weekend. Bye. Bye.